Good evening everybody and welcome to the Audio Guide to the Galaxy for a special episode, The Walking Guide to the Solar System. My name is Leon and I'm a presenter here at the Sartek Planetarium and I will be your guide for this recording. For this episode, we're going to be doing things a little different to usual. This episode is intended to be listened to while you go for a walk, whether you're strolling or rolling or just moaning about having to go for a walk. So you can listen to this episode whenever it suits you. I personally go walking in the afternoon. I am definitely not a morning person, but props to you if you are. And I've got a moderately ambitious goal for us. We're going to start at the sun and walk all the way to Mars and beyond into the asteroid belt. Obviously, we can't walk from the sun to Mars in real life, so we're going to do a scale model by walking around our suburb. Here's how it's going to work. You're going to hear this beat. I want you to step in time to this beat. And how does this match to our solar system? Each beat represents travelling 87,500 kilometres, and we're going to be walking at 2 beats per second. Or in other words, we're going to be imitating travelling at 175,000 kilometres per second, which is really fast. To give you an idea of how fast this is, this means that we can get from here on Earth all the way to the Moon in 5 beats. And the reason we need to travel so fast is that space is really big. And that's why it's called space. And if we travelled any slower, we would take a very long time to get anywhere. Right, have you got your headphones in and your shoes on? Great! Let's set the scene. We're starting at the sun. Deep within the core of the sun, hydrogen atoms are fused together into helium. Every second, the sun smashes 600 million tonnes of hydrogen together and converts it into 596 million tonnes of helium. The remaining 4 million tonnes of matter is converted into energy by the famous relation E equals mc squared. And this is where the sun gets the energy to shine. And here is where we depart from the sun. Begin! The first destination on our journey is the closest planet to the Sun, Mercury. This planet is about 70 million kilometres away from the Sun, and that sounds like a long way, but compared to the size of our solar system, that's actually really, really close. Mercury is a planet of extremes. It's the smallest planet in the solar system. Side by side to the Earth, Mercury is only a little bit bigger than Australia, and 20 times less heavy than the Earth. Its orbit 
is the most elliptical of all the planets. The rest of the planets orbit the Sun in an almost circular orbit, whereas Mercury's orbit is noticeably oval-shaped. It's the fastest moving planet. Being so close to the Sun, it feels the intense gravitational pull and races along its orbit at a speed of about 47 kilometers a second. And that's fast enough to travel from Perth to New Zealand and back in about five minutes. It speeds around the Sun in just 88 days. So if you lived on Mercury, you'd have a birthday every few months compared to here on Earth. planet is made of rock, similar to the Earth with a large iron core. But being so small has had a major impact on Mercury's geological evolution. Mercury just doesn't have enough gravity to hold on to much of an atmosphere. Here on Earth, the air stays near the ground. It doesn't float away into space because Earth's gravity is strong enough to keep it here. Mercury, on the other hand, just doesn't have enough gravity to hold on to much at all. The end result is that Mercury has very little atmosphere to speak of. The consequence of this is that Mercury has no protection against incoming space rocks. Here on Earth, we see them moving through our atmosphere all the time. We might call them shooting stars. On Mercury, there are no shooting stars. Any piece of space rock will slam unimpeded into the surface, leaving behind a crater. And the end result of this is that Mercury is literally covered in craters. Here on Earth, we have lots of open ground, and occasionally there are craters from big impacts, thousands or even millions of years ago. On Mercury, literally every part of the surface is part of a crater. Big craters, small craters, you name it. Without much of an atmosphere, Mercury's surface is also exposed to the harsh extremes of space. During the day, it feels the full force of the sun being so close and heats up to about 430 degrees Celsius. But at night, without the atmosphere to trap the heat in and keep the planet warm, the temperature plummets to minus 170 degrees Celsius. And this swing of temperatures from day to night is greater than any other planet in the solar system. Probably my favourite fascinating thing about Mercury comes from the combination of its slow spin and very stretched orbit. When we look at the Sun here on Earth, its movement across the sky, rising in the east and setting in the west, is caused mostly by the spin of the Earth. Only by watching the Sun, day after day for many weeks, do we see subtle movements of the Sun in our sky, such as a north or south drifting related to the seasons. These are due to the movement of the Earth through space. Mercury, on the other hand, spins 1400 times slower than the Earth, only once every 59 days. So slowly that, Compared to its orbit, 
a lot of the movement of the Sun across the Mercurian sky is actually due to the planet moving through space. And this leads to something wonderful. As Mercury moves around the Sun, its movement through space causes the Sun to set in the West, just like it does here on Earth. But a few days later, the rotation of Mercury causes the Sun to rise again from the West where it has just set appearing to move backwards across the sky and then finally the sun turns around in the sky and sets again. So Mercury has doubled sunsets and the same thing happens at sunrise. The sun rises in the east due to the movement of Mercury through space, stays up for a little bit and then says, no oh man, not ready yet and because of the rotation of the planet, turns around in the sky and sets for a few days and then rises again before moving across the sky. double sunrises and double sunsets, all due to the orbit and the spin. And just like that, we've reached Mercury. Next in our journey is Venus. Venus is named after the Roman goddess of love because in the times of year when we can see it, it glows so brightly in our sky, just like the fires of passion that love ignites within our hearts. But that's where the romance stops. Pragmatically, Venus can be thought of as Earth's evil twin. It's almost the same size as Earth, just a tiny bit smaller, and it's made of rocks, similar to the Earth. It has an atmosphere, as does Earth. But there is one major problem. Venus doesn't have a strong magnetic field. Scientists aren't 100% certain why, but it seems to have something to do with the interior of Venus being pretty much the same temperature all throughout. Here on Earth, it gets hotter as you go deeper, and this causes mass movement of material up and down in the Earth, just like the globules of wax you see in a lava lamp, and this generates our protective magnetic field. This doesn't seem to be the case on Venus. So here on Earth, our strong magnetic field deflects high-energy particles that come from the Sun up to the North and South Poles, and these particles, which we call solar wind, have a lot of energy but as they're deflected by the Earth's magnetic field, they lose a lot of that energy. And when they finally collide with the Earth's atmosphere, they've lost so much that the end result is we just see the top of our atmosphere glowing. And it looks very pretty, and we call this phenomenon an aurora. And Earth's magnetic field protects us and our atmosphere from the high energy radiation of the Sun. But picture, if you will, Venus, as it might have looked a few billion years ago. Scientists speculate that it might have had oceans just like the Earth. But without a strong magnetic field to protect the planet, solar radiation bombarded it freely. Water molecules can be broken down by the solar radiation, breaking apart into hydrogen and oxygen. Hydrogen is very light and so quickly boils away into space, while oxygen is very reactive and so quickly combines with carbon compounds to form carbon dioxide. Slowly, Whatever water Venus may have had was broken down and the atmosphere changed into one dominated by carbon dioxide. A thick carbon dioxide atmosphere that we can see when we look at Venus today. Carbon dioxide traps heat like a blanket. Sunlight comes in, warming the planet. Normally the heat will be radiated back out into space, like on Mercury. But the thick carbon dioxide atmosphere traps the heat and the planet gets hotter and hotter and hotter. Eventually it reaches a temperature where everything levels out 
but unfortunately for us, that temperature is 460 degrees Celsius. Venus, despite not being the closest planet to the Sun, is in fact the hottest planet. Similar size to Earth, similar composition, possibly similar history, but completely different outcomes based on a magnetic field. Scientists are still trying to understand the surface of Venus. We know the surface is made of rock floating atop a mantle, not broken up into different tectonic plates like here on Earth. And that gives completely different geology. But here we are at Venus. I hope you brought your radar equipment with you. Venus's thick clouds of sulfuric acid and carbon dioxide atmosphere make it impossible to see the surface of the planet with the light that our eyes can see. It's only by using cloud-penetrating radar that we can peer beneath to the ground below. Next stop, Earth. Here in the SciTech Planetarium, people often ask me what my favourite planet is. And without a second thought, I can say Earth. Earth isn't just my favourite planet because we live here. Earth is beautiful and fascinating in so many ways. We have weather, similar to but distinctly different from any other planet. We have geology, unlike any other place in the solar system. And while other planets have geology and meteorology, Earth has something that is unique. Out of all the places in the universe we've looked, we haven't found it anywhere else life. And life on Earth has changed our planet. The algae in our oceans and the trees on land consume the carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and excrete oxygen as waste, and they've changed our atmosphere. Oxygen reacts very energetically, and harnessing this energetic reaction, life on Earth has been able to evolve vigorously. We have a moon that, side by side, is the largest moon compared to its planet in the whole solar system. Born in a violent collision with the newly formed Earth four and a half billion years ago, the moon stabilizes the Earth's spin, keeping our planet stable for the billions of years that it takes intelligent life to evolve. The moon's influence causes our tides. Life on Earth began in the oceans, and it's likely that the tides, intermittently exposing sea life to the surface of the Earth, forced life to evolve to live out of the water and move onto land. Earth is at just the right distance from the sun that we neither boil nor freeze. We say the Earth is in the Goldilocks zone because here on Earth it's not too hot, like Venus, not too cold, like Mars. Here on Earth it's just right. Just right for water to exist as a liquid. And by the way, where did that water come from? We know the Earth was very hot when it first formed, and that's why we have volcanoes. The interior rocks of the Earth are still so hot that they've literally melted. Water on Earth had to have arrived after the Earth formed. And we think that it might have come from comets, icy objects from the distant solar system slamming into the Earth after getting dragged off course by Jupiter's gravity. So let me try to summarize why the Earth is so special. Four and a half billion years ago, Earth formed from the cloud of dust and gas that accompanied the Sun after its formation. 
In the wild and violent chaos of the early solar system, the newly formed Earth was struck by another large, half-formed planet. This collision set the Earth spinning rapidly, giving us our quick day and night cycle, and all the broken bits of rock left over from the collision formed the Moon. Collisions from comets thrown inwards by Jupiter brought water to Earth, water that could exist as a liquid because the Earth is in the Goldilocks zone. Liquid water and complex chemistry eventually formed life on Earth, life that was forced to evolve to live on land because of the tides caused by the Moon. Life that was protected from dangerous radiation from the sun by our magnetosphere. Life that could harness oxygen and perform very energetic reactions. It wasn't easy, but as this life branched out, eventually a particularly clever species of two-legged mammal figured out how to record podcasts and build headphones. And here we are. We've just passed Earth and we're on our way to the red planet Mars. And let's get straight to the point. Why is Mars red? Mars has large amounts of iron oxide on its surface. Iron oxide is the fancy term for rust, which is reddish in colour. Mars is a frozen desert, so old that it's literally rusting. But it's really interesting when you see a picture from the surface of Mars taken by one of the many landers and rovers that have visited there. When we look at Mars in the night sky, we're looking at a reddish planet against a very dark sky. So the contrast makes Mars look a bright red rich colour. And we might be tempted to think that the surface of Mars is similar in colour to a strawberry or something. But when you look at pictures of Mars from the surface, taken by the rovers and landers, you get a bit of a surprise. Mars is greyish, with a hint of red. Of course, when you add up a hint of red over the entire planet, you ultimately get a noticeable lush red. But the surface itself is significantly darker than you might expect. Mars is exciting because it's about the only other place in the solar system where humans might feasibly live one day within the next 50 years or so. Maybe. There's some speculation about maybe one day people might live on some of the moons of Jupiter and Saturn, but the technology to do that is still decades away. But Mars? Mars is feasible. It's there, and we've sent many spacecraft there. Currently, there are two operational robots on the surface of Mars. The Curiosity rover, which landed in 2011, has been exploring the surface of Mars, looking for clues to its past, written in the surface geology. Did Mars have extensive oceans at some point in the past? Was there once a thicker atmosphere on Mars? Those are the curious questions that Curiosity is trying to answer. There's a second lander called InSight. Unlike Curiosity, InSight doesn't move around. Instead, it's fixed in place and has deployed several instruments. One of them is a seismometer to measure Mars quakes to determine if the planet has active geology. 
Another instrument that InSight has is a thermometer. The plan was to drill down into Mars a few metres and then measure the temperature of the subsurface rocks. This would actually tell us quite a lot about the interior of Mars, and from that we could tease out clues about Mars' history. As I said, drilling down a few metres was the plan, because something went wrong. The drill carrying the thermometer is having a lot more trouble getting down into the surface than NASA engineers expected. The ground is a lot softer than we thought, and the drill is having a lot of trouble gaining any traction to actually dig down. As of this recording, after 18 months of trying, they've finally managed to drill down about 20 centimetres into Mars. They still have another 5 metres to go though, so only time and testing will tell. Soon, NASA will launch another rover called Perseverance on its six-month journey to Mars. This rover will have the explicit goal of looking for potential signs of life on Mars. There's extensive evidence that Mars used to have oceans just like Earth. We can see dried riverbeds and canyons that were carved out by colossal floods and movements of water. Like Venus, these oceans slowly disappeared billions of years ago. But just like life on Earth began in the oceans, there's the tantalising thought that the oceans of Mars may have harboured some form of life. Only further exploration will tell. And just like that, we've reached Mars. Be sure to wave at Mark Watney as we zip past. Beyond Mars, we get into the asteroid belt. Millions of small, rocky objects left over from the formation of the solar system. You might have seen in movies like Star Wars, when the characters fly through asteroid belts, it looks absolutely petrifying, with rocks colliding here and there and danger at every turn. But remember what I said at the start. Space is called space because there's lots of space. Even though there are millions of asteroids in the asteroid belt, most of them ranging in size from a few metres to a few dozen kilometres, the distance between them is enormous. Numerous spacecraft have flown through the asteroid belt and never even seen an asteroid. So in real life, the most dangerous thing about flying through the solar system's asteroid belt is dying of boredom. Beyond here, we get to the outer solar system and the gas giants. All up, it's taken us 20 minutes to travel from the Sun to Mars and we were travelling at 175,000 kilometres a second. But we just chose that speed so we could walk at a nice leisurely pace. In fact, light from the sun travels even faster, 300,000 kilometres per second, and so reaches Mars in just 12 and a half minutes. So realistically, in the time it's taken you to listen to this recording, light from the sun has travelled well past Mars and beyond, into the asteroid belt, on its way to the outer solar system. 
That's it for this special episode of the Audio Guide to the Galaxy. Stay tuned for episode 2 of The Walking Guide to the Solar System. And remember, knowing stuff makes you cool.